Welcome to Doctor Who A to Z, a show that covers everything Doctor Who from beginning to end, from 1963 to present, from Hartnell to Gatwa, from Auton to Zygon. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Doctor Who A to Z. My name is Alan, and welcome to the show, Josh Wilson. Glad to be here, Alan. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm glad to have you on board. I'm looking so, forward to it. So Josh and I go way back to the early days of the Who Lancer convention when your boss, your sort of boss, Lars Pearson from Mad Norwegian Press was a guest at the convention. And I found out that there was a local guy who did some work for Mad Norwegian. And I thought, well, I need to meet this guy. Well, that would be me. And there you are. Here so, I am. <laughs> it's good to have you aboard. So before we get into our main topic of discussion, which is going to be robots of death, we're recording this on March 15th. Just yesterday, there was an announcement of, uh, now we've known that there were going to be spinoff series coming because uh, Russell T. Davies has not hidden that fact. But uh, we got a, we got a rumor, a strong rumor yesterday from the mirror, which um, the mirror gets a bad rap, but it actually doesn't have too bad a track record on these things. And uh, Nicola Methven, who wrote this article, has has done pretty well with predicting these things happening. So wherever she's getting her information from, it seems to be fairly reliable. The story goes that uh, Doctor Who bosses are planning a new spinoff series uh, starring Gemma Redgrave. It's going to be a unit-based series and Torchwood-style kind of show. Um, just a, when was it? Just like last week, I think it was, in an interview at a, I think at a convention, Katie Manning sort of let it slip that, you know, some of her friends were going to be coming back to the show. She didn't really say anything more than that, but that people were returning to the show. So it seems like, based on what we saw in the final Jodie Whittaker episode, I mean, what we saw there just leads so naturally into this. I mean, it's not even like it's news because they just basically told you this is a show we're going to be doing. Sure. I mean, and it's the obvious one to do, right? It's always kind of been the obvious one to do. If you really exactly. think about it, it was always weird that they went with Torchwood, which was unit with the serial numbers all, but filed off on it and <laughs> made edgy and adult, I guess. Right. So I, I'm, I'm glad that they were like, all right, let's do unit finally. Exactly. And, you know, I've been for more than 10 years, I've been asking for a companion spinoff series with the classic companion cast. And that that setup in the final Jody episode just seemed like they had heard my cries for the past 10 <laughs> years and were gifting me with the series that I've been dreaming of. So, you know, I think this is it. I think we're heading forward with it. Well, we'll uh, ha wait and see. Uh, fingers exactly. crossed. But, Joshy, you know what that means. If we get it, that means you probably are going to get more Osgood. <sighs> Aren't you excited about that? Yay, more Osgood. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we will follow that story. We'll see how it develops. Um, and we'll be looking forward to that show if it happens. So let's jump into our main topic as we're following the path that leads us to the 60th anniversary we're sort of hitting highlights from the first 59 years of doctor who and this week we have landed on robots of death 
Robots of Death was first broadcast in January and February of 1977. It was a four-parter that ran from uh, January 29th through February 19th. It was the fifth story of season 14 starring Tom Baker as the Doctor, and it was the second story to feature Leela, a new companion played by Louise Jameson, who was the successor to Liz Sladen's hugely popular Sarah Jane Smith, who had departed two stories earlier. Robots was written by Chris Bauscher, who had written Leela's debut story, The Face of Evil, which was so well received by the production team that when another script fell through, Bauscher was immediately asked to write another script. Working titles for the story included The Storm Mine Murders and Planet of the Robots. The story was inspired mainly by Agatha Christie-style mysteries like Murder on the Orient Express, but also drew heavily from Dune. So, Josh, this was your suggestion. This was, you know, I said, you know, Josh is coming on the show, so what would you like to do? And this was the first one you suggested. So why was this one the first one that you thought of? Well, um, a couple of different reasons, really. Um, so technically, my first Doctor Who story ever was The Five Doctors. Um, Mine too. Right. So, but my first I guess actual real Doctor Who story was the Robots of Death. And one of the things that I really love about Robots of Death is I think it is a perfect entry point in the Doctor Who, classic Doctor Who, because it pretty much has everything you could want to get. I mean, like it's it's like prototypical Doctor Who. It is Tom Baker doing what he's doing, and it's you know, you've got a new companion, so you also always have the, you know, kind of the new companion introduction to kind of bring people up to speed. And it's a phenomenally done science fiction story, but doing what Doctor Who does is taking science fiction and melding it with all sorts of other genres and ideas and storylines. And just the the set design is beautiful yeah. and the costumes are beautiful and it just is such a strikingly looking story. And yet, I mean, like it's still, you know, made with, you know, six pence and some shoestring. And, <laughs> right. But I mean, that's, and that's just what Doctor Who is. And yeah. you, you see the Doctor get involved and it goes through all the Doctor Who typical tropes and, mm-hmm. and then gets the resolution. Like it's, it is Doctor Who in a nutshell, really, which is why I was like, I always point to it as like if you want a good starting point for classic doctor who this is a good one to go with and that's why i picked it because like my first entry into it as well so after i saw the five doctors for the first time my next real doctor who story was the mask of mandragora it wasn't quite the same experience as having seen robots of death for the first time you know but but when you talk (laughs) about it being a good introduction to the show and introducing a new companion it also i mean if you're a new viewer and you want to know what's going on it also takes the time to introduce you to the whole concept of what the tardis is sure absolutely so i mean it's kind of a daft explanation but i mean at least it's there you you get the idea that it's a spaceship that's bigger on the inside (laughs) But it makes perfect sense. Oh, does it? Does it really? (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay. Let's say it makes more sense than the only other previous explanation that we ever got from Hartnell, which was something about watching something on a television screen. Fair enough. Fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) But I love Leela's reaction. Like the, the doctor just spouts off this craziness and she just looks at him like he is insane. Absolutely. One of my favorite moments of that story. And this is a story with a ton of favorite moments. 
I think you're right. I think it's one of I think it's just one of the closest you get to a perfect Doctor Who. Yeah, uh, it's and it, and it's and it's weird. And this is where I I get the you know people watching and listening at home to start to hate me because I Baker Tom Baker era is not my favorite. I mean, if I'm going to go with Tom Baker, I'm, of course I'm going to go with Hinchcliffe because of those are the best ones. Right. Um, but it, it's not the one that like if I want to feel good Doctor Who story that I'm going to revisit from my youth, I don't go to Tom Baker. But this is again, it, it just. And it transcends that uh, <laughs> my feelings for for that era because it, yeah. it's it's just so good, um, man. It's just like everything about it. It's just so great, and the guest cast is phenomenal. Um, Absolutely just phenomenal. So many great moments. And what's really interesting about it is we're still pre Star Wars, and, right. and I think what this really does is it really shows just like how far ahead of the curve Doctor Who can be. Yeah, because you've got I mean, again, we're we're in this transition era in the 70s where you're you're getting away from like the Buck Rogers type of like all chromey types of st- spaceships mm-hmm. and everything is like all looks all futuristic. Um, but the, the fact that you've got these futuristic, you know, sci fi cast that is they're, they're bickering just like regular people <laughs> and not yeah. just like this shining, upstanding you know, sci-fi crew um, mm-hmm. just makes them instantly relatable. Yes. And they're instantly like unlikable to a point even, but you kind of like get it. Yes. There's a moment in, I think it's in part four, at the beginning of part four, when they're, they've had this tragic accident and the, the sand miner is sinking and they're like scrambling around and it's a tense situation and everybody's like terrified that they're going to die. And over the, the intercom, Pool says to Tooth, he says, well, just just try to keep it steady. And she goes, oh, thanks. I would never have thought of that. (laughs) In the middle of a crisis, they're still being bitchy with each other. And I absolutely love it. I love it. Like, I think my absolute favorite part of the story is something that you may not even notice when watching it. Mm -hmm. It is when um, um, the captain and Paul are, are talking about like, well, who could possibly be the murderer? And yeah. Paul's saying yeah. like, like, you know, well, have you ever heard of uh, a double bluff? And, <laughs> and he's like, what are you even talking about? This is ridiculous. And so that's, and then when he goes in and talks to the doctor and the doctor is like, what do you, and he's, you know, he's trying to blame the doctor for everything. And he says, well, why would I do that? This is ridiculous. This is something that I, why would I be doing any of this? And the guy's like, well, haven't you ever heard of a double bluff? And in the background, you can just see Paul just, his head goes down like that. And that just gets me every single time that I see it. I love it so much. That is one of the best moments in the whole story. Absolutely. Um, I want to talk about the script. And specific, first of all, the script is incredibly well written. I think all the characters really come to life. I think that, especially in part one, when you first kind of meet them and they're sitting in the common area and they're just talking back and forth. They're not talking like characters who are setting up the story for the watcher. They're just having conversations. They're like, as you say, real relatable people. But the thing that I think is really good, and I I don't think any other writer really got this the same way is that Chris Boucher, who introduced Leela in the previous story gets her. Like no one wrote Leela the way he did. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I think, first of all, she is a unique character. I think she's one of the best Doctor Who characters ever. And those first two stories, man, and, and I think this one even maybe more than the first one, she just comes to life. And it's both the writing and Louise's performance. Yeah. I mean, I, I think in later stories, they go a little bit too much into the whole, like, Eliza Doolittle, like the doctor's yeah. got to be constantly teaching her. But here... Like, if you pay attention to the story, like, she cottons on, like, mm. to what is going on, like, immediately. She doesn't know that she's cotton on to it, but right. her, like, perspective of being able to observe and being more primitive. And, and so she, she knows, like, what Paul's deal is, but doesn't know how to come forward and say it. Like, she doesn't have the context. Exactly. But she knows. Right. And I, I think that's a great dynamic for her and the doctor to have. I wish they had kept that more um, in her stories. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love that moment where she and Poole are talking to each other and she says something like, uh, you watch the room like a hunter. She, she, she's like, as you say, she is totally clued into him. He is the one who is, he is seeking something amongst the others. Right. Yeah. I love that. Right. I mean, like, and like, she's got that right from the get go. Like she knows. Yeah. And but she just doesn't understand like how that culture works and how everyone operates um, in this uh, you know situation that is far more advanced than anything she's ever come across. Mm -hmm. So she doesn't know how to like interpret what she's thinking. She's just mm -hmm. interpreting it in her own uh, culture's perspective. But and I just like that she knows what's going on. She just has this sense about her that she could really uh, you know get the idea of what's happening. But uh, yeah, can't really like do anything about it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's in later stories, but and I think it's um, primarily image of the Fendal, where the doctor is telling other people that she is a creature of instinct. And mm -hmm. I think you see that here without being told that. Right. You know, she, as you say, she's observing what's going on around her. She doesn't understand what it is, but she can contextualize it in her own sort of in her own frame of reference. Right, right. Um, you know, you, you almost get the idea, like, I, I think they were kind of toying with, maybe she's got like this sixth sense because there's the parts in the story where she's like, oh, I said something happening that they, yeah, you know, they don't ever come back to that in future stories. But yes. I kind of like the idea that it's not necessarily she's got like this extra sixth sense. She's just so attuned to like her environment that she can kind of like tell yeah. like something's about to go down. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I... Uh, how, the way I took that too. Who is your favorite of the guest characters? Oh, that's just so hard. Um, <laughs> I mean, like, I think by default it has to be Paul. Um, yeah. Just because, like, early on he's such a joy to watch, and then, like, you know, he's the one that ends up suffering from robophobia, which takes him out of the story. But that's such a cool idea. Like, if you stop to think about how this culture would work mm -hmm. and how much we, as a you know society, normally put into normal you know facial ticks mm. and movements and things like that and that's something yeah. that would throw people off and if you're dealing with them of course you have to stop and think well maybe the company should have done the research a little bit better than sending somebody who could potentially suffer from robophobia off of the partner robot to, to go investigate robot stuff yeah, but <laughs> but i mean um i i think uh that's david collins right he does yeah. uh just a great job of being, you know, this 
guy at the beginning who seems kind of like flighty and not really taking things too seriously, but you do kind of get the idea underneath it all. Like he's, he's up to something like he's the one that kind of starts pointing things out and, and questioning like, Oh, maybe it's not just these new people who are showing up. Maybe it is one of us because that's kind of what he's there for. And mm-hmm. so he does a good job of straddling that line between not making that completely obvious Unlike yeah. some other guest characters that uh, are completely obvious in their motivations that are supposed <laughs> to be a big secret to the last story, uh, last episode. But that's neither here nor there. And I, and I just, I mean, when he's completely gone off the rocker and is, you know, just crawled up into a ball and and like trying to justify or, or reason with the robots, like, no, take them. and You don't want me. Uh, just leave me alone. Yeah. Um, I think it's fascinating to watch. I agree. Um, so David Collings returns what six or whatever years later in um, Modern Undead, which I think he's also fantastic in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, speaking of, again of Chris Belcher, it's a shame that he didn't write more yes. for Doctor Who than than these two stories because I think that they're exceptionally good. Both of them are. Absolutely. Um, he. You know, comes back to to write some novels, which are excellent mm. um, for the the BBC range later yeah. on, um, and he also does some uh, audio stories for um, Magic Bullet. <laughs> I think he does them with. He does the Caldor City stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, basically picks up um, years later with some of the same characters from the story, but doesn't do any more televised work, uh, which is yeah. a shame because he was, you know, he's he's like one of those perfect doctor who writers um of the time just mm. uh getting the the science of it and you can tell like he's fascinated with these i mean the whole production team you can tell was absolutely fascinated with the idea of these robots and artificial intelligence and they really yeah. go for it in the story yeah and um yeah it's a shame that we didn't get more from Boucher. absolutely i think his strength not only in character i think that he is an exceptional world builder uh, you're not just seeing the rooms in which these characters exist. Uh, you're you're you get a sense of where they're from, and the society that they come from. And and he does so much with dialogue that just fleshes everything out in a way that you know you don't see that a lot in a classic Doctor Who. No, absolutely. That's what part of what makes this story so memorable is yeah. the world building. Yeah, it's like you remember like this world like. I think they mentioned Caldor City once. And I mean, obviously they come back to it, but you know, people remember like Caldor City because exactly it's what is mentioned in Robots to Death in that society. Like Big Finish has made numerous box sets based in Caldor City because just that nugget that Boucher starts here with this whole world yeah. is so intriguing that people want to go back to it. Right. Um, let's talk about set design and costume design because you mentioned that at the beginning how good these are. This is a this is a really well designed story. You have that sort of art deco look to everything, and and what we get from the dialogue in the story is that these people are spending like they're doing like a two year tour of duty essentially on these ships, which are mining ships, but that's also their their home, and some of it is a little you know out sure because you've got two first of all you have to go to the 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 headdresses that they all wear which are just (laughs) bizarre but then two like you get a scene in her bedroom and she's in this bed that has like this this huge clamshell sort of backdrop it's 
just hilarious. No, um, I love like I in particular I love the costume design because yeah. it really sells like what kind of world that they live in. Yes, I mean you you stop to stop and think like if you really stop like they are supposed to be manual laborers, right? They're miners. They're out there doing the mining, but because this is a society built upon robots, like you're. Yeah. You're out there doing manual work, but the robots are doing it. So you don't have the same uniforms or equipments. Right. You could be all fancy. And it's just that that's the way that this whole society has developed. And like yeah. the costume design sells that so well. Totally agree. Um, speaking of the characters, uh, I I love that moment where um, Zilda, you, you get that sense that she is there because her family used to be prominent and now they're not. And she's sort of had a, a come down, like in societal ranking or whatever. And I find that really interesting. Yeah. And, and they only touch about it shortly, but you've got yeah. this whole like class divide between the founding families and mm -hmm. everybody else. And you, you've got uh, the conversations between her and the captain. And he's yeah. obviously somebody who has had to scrape in, in, in claw his way up to even be able to be in the same uh, ship as yeah. somebody from the founding families and it's all about the money with him. And he's, that's why he's so adamant that we've got to get this stuff done because that's how he can be equal to somebody just happens to be from this one particular family. Yeah. I and they don't that. really explore a whole lot of it, but again, just adds to the whole world building of it all. Exactly. Exactly. You, it's not just the conflict between those two characters. You get a sense of how their society is structured. And I think it's, it's just genius writing. Absolutely. It's really good. I mean, it just is. We talked about uh, Zilda and Yvonne Off and, uh, and Toos. I love Toos. She, I, I think she's one of the best characters in the story. She might not have as compelling a, a backstory as they've built into the other characters, but, you know, Pamela Salem, you, you just cannot argue with her at all. She just gives you a great performance no matter what she does. Right. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, we love seeing uh, people come back uh, in, in Doctor Who and she comes back in one of my favorite stories ever. So, yeah. And I'm sure, sure. we'll talk about that one at some absolutely. point. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> talk about another perfect Doctor Who story. Close, but uh, yes. Well, you know, I think it's pretty close. Well, I mean, there's another story called Curse of Fenric that is, you know, more perfect. But I mean, it's like very close, very close. <laughs> That's a good point. We should probably talk a little bit about Tom, right? I mean, you haven't oh, really I guess had we, a chance. I guess we certainly should. Why would we not <laughs> talk about the doctor himself? Right. Um, I mean, again, Tom is Tom and he is who he is. I mean, and but there's a reason why he is the definitive doctor for so yeah. many people and for an entire generation. I mean, you know, he did it for so long. I mean, like, right. you know, whatever you think of him as a, a person himself, like he always puts 110% into these performances, no matter what he seems to think about the writing. Like I was watching the behind the scenes stuff, uh, just, uh, you know, I haven't watched it in forever. And then talking yeah. about how Tom was, bad mouth in the script like this script i mean like out of all things like you bad mouth this one tom <laughs> exactly i find that so interesting like what was it that he took umbrance with like what is it that he saw in this script that he didn't didn't like i just think I mean, he's just the type of guy that doesn't like anything but that doesn't stop him from giving 110 percent. and i i mean like i will true. always respect him for that because he does not let that show in any of his work that he does yeah 
That is true. And he just sort of embodied that role. Like he, you know, he took to it like um, he, he had just come from a construction site. He had he had done a couple of movies. He had done stage plays. And him, he just comes into this and he's basically Tom Baker in space. But he throws himself into it. Yes, yes, he, he certainly does. And I, I will always appreciate his relationship with Leela. I mean, like, I mean, he, it's, it's hard because he also, he's also great with um, the Romanas and we're always yeah. going to be great with uh, Sarah Jane. But yeah. um, I think he, as an actor, I think really enjoyed playing that uh, know-it-all, like, the uh, professor to Leela's Eliza Doolittle. And yes. I think he really felt he could sink his teeth into that regardless of what he ended up thinking about. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so I, I really feel like his relationship there was one of his most believable ones that he had with any of his companions because yeah. he really liked the idea of like, well, I get to be the guy who takes a savage and it's just a great dynamic between the fourth doctor and Leela. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, it's yeah, it's uh, probably my favorite of uh, the combinations for uh, Mr. Baker there. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, there we have a change of uh, we, basically a change of direction between from this season to the next season. So we start this season with Sarah Jane. We have a companionless story with uh, the deadly assassin. And then we get three Leela stories. Those first three Leela stories are so good. They are like undeniable doctor who classics and then the the following season is taken over the the showrunner becomes graham williams as philip hinchcliffe makes his exit from the show and the whole tone of the show changes and i think that the direction of leela's character changes as well yes and it just doesn't have that same spark right between the two leads that's unfortunate i think that happens every single time we go through one of those kinds of change-ups i mean you have a companion come in at the end of uh you know somebody's uh run and then the new showrunners pick up and it's never quite the same and happened several times over the course of doctor who which is kind of a shame yeah but uh yeah no because i absolutely agree with you that uh her best stories are those three Hinchcliffe stories that they do. Yeah. And uh, it just kind of runs down here again. It, it plays into more of rather than having her be almost an equal to Tom, like she, they really play up that, that, you know, he's the know-it-all and she's just the dumb savage <laughs> rather than showing how a dumb savage can be equal to the doctor just in different right. ways. I think there, I think there's two examples in the following season that are, at least almost on par with these first three. And that's uh horror of thing rock. Mm. The one that starts off the season and um, later on in the season, the sun makers. Sure. Yeah. I think those two are, are ones that really get Leela's character and the other ones, you know, they're good, you know, but I just don't find the same level of quality in the writing for her character as, right. as in these ones. Yeah, no, and I agree. And I mean, and that's kind of understandable. I mean, she was created under Hinchcliffe's yeah. watch, and yeah. you know, once he's gone, it's the those all those ideas and the things that they want to hold to are, are going to be gone. So, right, you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Such is the way of a long-running show that changes 
cast, changes producers, changes writers, everything. All that stuff just, you know, it's an evolution. Yeah, well, changes for good and bad. Right. It's always going to happen. So we mentioned it briefly earlier on. Um, when we when we do these examinations of the television stories, I, I want to kind of go further than that and go into the extended media. So, Joshi, if someone is really into this story and wanted to sort of explore further, whether it be in novels or comics or Big Finish or whatever, this is a really good one because this inspired a lot of, of continuation. So talk us through some of that stuff. Sure, absolutely. Um, welcome to Josh's spinoff media corner, as it were, there you I guess. Go. <laughs> <laughs> so um, actually, the, the one that I would recommend uh, first and foremost is a story from Big Finish called Robophobia by Nicholas mm. Briggs. Um, if you were to pick one that, uh, wanted to pick up where robots of death leads off, uh, that's the one I would go with. It is a seventh doctor story. Um, also introduces what will become the best big finish, uh, companion in the form of, uh, Levchinka. Mm. But um, it is set after the robots of death and it's kind of works as an inversion of the story uh, where the doctor shows up and he, the first person he meets, which we very quickly identify, is the secret agent that is there to investigate stuff. And then they are the first one to die. And then the doctor kind of has to work backwards from there to figure out why he was there and what's going on. Um, it is actually quite good. I would highly recommend it uh, to anybody because uh, Levchenka is played by Nicola Walker, who mm. uh, you may be familiar with. She was on uh, Spooks, um, among like she, you know, turned on to any sort of like cop show in the UK, and Nicola Walker's been on it. That's true. <laughs> She's always playing a detective uh, somewhere there, um, and she is just a great character. And they bring her back to be a companion for the Eighth Doctor later on. And mm -hmm. so, Robophobia is her first story. Um, is set on a um, starliner that is delivering uh, thousands upon thousands of robots. And then things start to go crazy from there. I don't want to spoil it too much, so I'll, I'll leave it at that. But it's highly recommended. Uh, that's definitely the one I would say to go check out if you want to more in this world. Um, Bauscher also wrote a book called Corpse Marker. That is um, also a sequel to this. Takes place in the same uh, setting with the Fourth Doctor and Leela. That is by the uh, BBC Books range, but uh, that might be a bit harder to come by since <laughs> I, I, you know you can probably still find them online for a decent price. I don't think that was one of the more expensive ones. Uh, but I mean, if you if you want to go back to the source again, I, I talked about Caldor City um, a little while ago as well. Um, both Course Marker and Calder City were also written by Boucher. Um, Calder City, uh, I don't think it there's anything that really conflicts with anything that Big Finish does. I think they kind of didn't go out of the way to contradict it, even though it's not part of the official like Big Finish canon, I guess. Uh, but it does pick up. I want to say like 10 years after Robots of Death with a lot of the same characters. And uh, so you can go check that out. But again, my biggest recommendation would be Robophobia. Easy to go to Big Finish website. Um, it's uh, one of the, the first, uh, I think it's like story number 149. So it may even be marked down to a nice cheap downloadable price from their website. 
Um, it is a great one. Uh, it really does justice to the Robusta Death, and that can be hard to do since Robusta Death is such a great story, but Robophobia really does. So check it out. Awesome. Well, thanks. I um, hope you enjoyed your first episode. Oh, well, obviously. Uh, I love it. You know, it, it's strange because it's been, I haven't done any sort of Doctor Who podcasting in years and years now. Um, and I was preparing for this and like, I could feel like the the old like uh, um, feeling flowing through me again. Like, ooh, I'm getting to talk about Doctor Who again. Right. Uh, it's just been a couple of years that I haven't really been in the Doctor Who world. I'm like, oh man, now I'm back, baby. I can't wait to talk about some <laughs> Doctor Who again. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. All right. Join us again next week when we are going to be delving into the resurrection of the Daleks from 1984, season 21, starring Peter Davison. (laughs) Looking forward to it. Right on. So until next week, everybody take care. We will see you very, very soon. And watch Doctor Who. And let us know if you've seen Robots of Death. Let us know what you think of it. If you haven't, if you watch it for the first time after our discussion, let us know what you thought of it, what your Im- what impact it had on you. All right. So we'll see you next week. Be seeing you. Thanks for listening to Doctor Who A to Z. You can find episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, and other podcast networks. Theme remix used by kind permission of Doctor Who composer Dominic Glenn. We'd love to hear from you, so please drop us a line at Doctor Who A to Z at Gmail or leave a comment wherever you're listening. If you've enjoyed this, please subscribe and consider leaving us a rating or review on your favorite podcast platform. See you next time, and until then, remember, we're all stories in the end. Just make it a good one.